happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adalamite whose name was Hira, where Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Et. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son. She called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb, when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform, this, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Then Judah was comforted. He went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adalamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her, at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adalamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at Enam at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the, keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man who... To whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread around his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. 
from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of them of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the house and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant who you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoken to him, This is the way of your servant treating me. His anger was kind kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done, there he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do you ever feel like God kind of sets things up in, in contrasts? Like, you see one thing here, and then you see something completely opposite on this side? I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. Sorry. Somebody's holding a grudge with my intro from last week. Um, but like, allows us to see two different sides and, and, and then contrast them together. And I, I was thinking through it this morning, actually, that we see Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the perfection of the creation. And then we see how things drastically change once we get to Genesis 3. And you see these completely different pictures. Throughout, throughout Scripture, we see this, the contrast between God's commands and God's design and then the ways of the world. And you see how different they are. And once you get to the New Testament, you see the, the difference between the compassionate Jesus and the self-righteous Pharisees. And then all, all through the Bible, it's just setting up this picture, the, the contrast between the depravity of sinners and the perfection of Jesus. There's always this continual contrast that we see. And then we, we kind of see that this morning as well. This contrast between Genesis 38, where we see Judah and, and Tamar. You see, and then we move into Genesis 39, and you see Joseph. And, and the, the different ways that he responds when faced with temptation, when faced with sin. 
And we see these, these two different things. There's immorality and morality. We see impurity and purity. We see righteousness and we see sin. And I want to look at these a little bit more in depth. Um, but then really to step back and say, what are we to do with these two chapters? I, I said this last week, but Genesis 38 there is no mention of God, what, he, what he's doing, just like we saw last week in Genesis 37. Um, but then in verse 38, in chapter, sorry, in chapter 39, we see something much different. So Genesis 38, what in the world is going on? Like we see this disaster, this sin. We see this thing that causes us to go, ugh, that's yucky. But what I, what I found was that like this actually becomes like Levitical law that when the oldest son would, would pass away, it was then the, the next son's responsibility to step up and to take that woman as his wife um, to provide offspring. And what I read this week as I was looking into it was that that offspring would then actually earn or, or would be owed the birthright. So that the birthright from the father would then go to that offspring because it was the offspring of the oldest son. And so just the fact that Judah's second son wants nothing to do with this practice. Like he, he says that he knew it says that he knew the child would not be his, because that son would then have the birthright even over the second son. So like there's still this tension between the birthright and that kind of stuff, which we've talked about birthrights over the last couple of months and this family continuing to have conflict because of this. See that God basically wipes out the, the older two sons. The younger son, Judah, wants nothing to do with giving his youngest son to Tamar. Um, but then Tamar, what does she do? She comes up with her own plan, right? Her own plan to have offspring, to seduce Judah by dressing up as a prostitute. A question I was asking myself a lot this week as I was, as I was looking at this, and I, the Bible doesn't say so. I want, I want to be careful. But like, it causes me to wonder about Judah's character. Like, what made Tamar think that this plan would even be successful? Like, what was it that caused her to think, oh, he might do this? Like, it makes me really question whether or not this was a morally upright, this is someone with high character, Anyways, again, it doesn't say specifically, but just why would she even think this had a chance at working? But again, we see this, this sin, this deception, the lies running deep within this family. I read a quote this week. It was from one of the commentaries I read. But it said, Tamar carries out her scheme by means of yet another masquerade as Jacob's resort deception continues to echo throughout the family history. Like, we talked a lot about Jacob's deception and him tricking his father, him stealing the birthright, all of that, and how that trend of lying and deceiving has then trickled down throughout this entire family line. It's almost to the point where it's not all that surprising now as we're following this line and we see lies and deception. It's not all that surprising, sadly, we see that Tamar is pregnant. She has, um, that they find out she's pregnant. And, what, and what, what was Judah's response? He's the first one to say, burn her. He's the first one to jump in and condemn her sin instead of, instead of realizing his own. Because like, at this point, I picture he's, he's tried to go and make it right. He tried to go and, I say make it right, he tried to go pay the price but then he said, okay, let's just move past this. I tried. Let's, I don't want to be laughed at. He ignores his own sin while condemning hers. And we'll come back to this in a minute. We see then there's the, the, the two twins that are, that are born. Then transitioning to chapter 39, we saw that kind of we go back to the story of Joseph. We, we left him at the end of chapter 37. It says where he was sold to Potiphar, this, this officer of Pharaoh. And we, we see right, right away, right when we get back into the story of Joseph, that although he is a slave, he's, he's risen to this place of power, this place of authority, this place of being very well respected in this home. 
verses 2 through 6, very specifically say that God has been giving him success. That in spite of how he's been treated by his brothers, in spite of the way that he's been sinned against, in spite of the ways that he's been rejected by his, his brothers, by his family, been sold as a slave, in spite of that, God is with him. God is causing him to have favor in, in the, this land that he's in, in Egypt. Then, apparently, he's this super handsome guy because the, Potiphar's wife then comes and starts making all these passes at him and trying to um, convince him to sleep with her. Then we see that, that contrasting picture, though, when, when, when speaking of morality, when speaking of, of what is pure, what is right, we see this contrasting example, right, with, with Joseph's response to this. What does he do? He, he flees. He, he runs. He even says, no, what, I cannot sin this, in this way against Potiphar, against my God. And I, I just want to point out real quick, like he calls it sin right away. He's like, no, I cannot do this. He doesn't use the words like, oh, I can't have this small mess up. I can't make this little mistake. I can't just have this lapse in judgment. No, he says like, I cannot sin in doing this. He's very, he calls it what it is. But then we saw as he flees, he leaves his coat and, and, and runs. And you notice this is the second time he's identified by a coat. First time is identified by, as dead to his father for the coat of, of the many colors that he had been given. And now he's identified as being guilty of this immorality based on this coat. And again, we see Joseph is, again, the victim of lies and deception. Once again, he's facing the consequences of sin that is not his own. Joseph's thrown into prison at no fault of his own. And again, just as a high-level view of this, we see these contrasting stories of Genesis 38 and Genesis 39. This one is just full of sin, full of wickedness, of impurity, sexual morality, all this issue we see in Genesis 38. And then Genesis 39, we, we still see the sin and wickedness, but we see a different response when presented with that. And I kept coming back to it as I was reading through these this week, multiple times, just like reading through this. Like, what are we supposed to do with, with these chapters? What are we supposed to do as we see these varying responses? We see these contrasting views. Because the way we act, our integrity, the way we are pure, it matters. Like, whether or not people are, are watching, it matters. Our character the way that we are pure, the way that we are obedient to Scripture, like, it, it matters. Like, neither one of these things were these huge public sins, right? Like, who knows who might have known or not known if Joseph had not fled that temptation. Like, it was, they were alone. Who knows who would have known? Even with Judah and Tamar, it doesn't make it seem like it was this big ordeal until he tried to call her out for her sin. Like, it's not those kind of things we're talking about. And I think as we look at Scripture, from beginning to end, it's often the individual. It's, it's, it's us. It's, it's, it's those actually being referenced. It's talking about this just severity of sin. And there's this high expectation. There's this high call as we look at Scriptures. We look at the Word from beginning to end. This integrity, having high character. And Genesis 39, I feel like, is often used as kind of the standard for integrity, for morality, how Joseph resisted sin. He, he fled from sin instead of giving into it. We see it's in contrast to those other examples, right? Like Judah and Tamar, like David and Bathsheba. There's these contrasting stories where Genesis 39 is kind of set up as the, the standard. But why is integrity so important? Why is being pure so important? Why is resisting sin so important? And it's the thing, as we consider our lives in light of Scripture, there is such a clear command to be pure, to be holy, to be upright. 
to conduct our lives as if we really follow Jesus. Does anyone remember the, the bracelets that used to be so popular, what would Jesus do? And Bells have one. I definitely had like 10 different colors. Yeah. Um, the, the WWJD, what would Jesus do bracelets? These bracelets that were really popular for a while, but why would people wear them? It was, just this, it was supposed to be this reminder that like, as we're going through our days, as we're, as we're just considering what we're doing, it's like always asking the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do in this situation? They must have a TV that said, like, I, I, I never had a TV like this, but I, I walked into actually the pastor's house that I grew up in, and on the corner of their TV, it, would, it said, Jesus is watching this too. Um, it's like, ooh. Um, but um, that's the only place I ever saw that. But it was just always this, this question of like, what would Jesus do? Because we're supposed to model our lives after Jesus, right? Like that is what we are to do. And although these bracelets are not <coughs> near as popular as they were, I still feel like the principle in and of itself, though, is a, question, it's a good question to ask ourselves, right? Like what would Jesus do in this situation or that situation? And I, like, why is this so important? And I, this is not universally true, but I feel like so many people, their first encounter with God, their first view of God is based off of what they see in the people that are claiming to know him. It's not, that's not everyone. But like so often what you hear is that people's first view of God comes from how they saw someone acting. That, that the life of a Christian is someone that they saw and said, Wow, I want that. That is attractive. I want whatever they have. Or, I don't want that. I don't want whatever they have. They're no different than the world. And you see kind of this both, both and thing. But what, what is it? Is that, why would someone want that? Is that because the life of a Christian is somehow easier or somehow always better in every circumstance? Like, I, I don't think that is true. But it, it comes in the hope that we can have regardless of the circumstances. I talked about this last week quite a bit, that regardless of what external circumstances might look like and, and regardless of how good or how bad things might be in the moment, like we can have this, this hope because God is sovereign, because God is in control, that God is always in control, that God is reigning. Like, this is something, this kind of hope, this kind of hope amidst a world that is full of brokenness is something that I think is extremely attractive. Like, I, I want to exhibit that type of hope. So as people look at us, what are they seeing? As people look at the lives of believers, those claiming to follow Jesus, what do they see? Do they see integrity? Do they, do they see the way that we show grace to one another and the ways we forgive one another. The ways we might love our spouses, love our friends, love our families. The ways that we go out of our way to help others. The ways that we're patient with frustrating people. The ways we open our lives to others. Because I feel like people are watching. Like As I, as I look at these two chapters, it's like, man, which one of those... Is something that makes someone want to go, I, I want what they have. There's this, most of you, a lot of you have probably heard that quote. It's like, share the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Like, I strongly despise that statement. Strongly despise that statement. Like, sharing the gospel in word is absolutely necessary. Like, that should be on our lips, on our tongue. But the truth behind that statement, though, like what it does get right is that people are watching and we have the opportunity to demonstrate what the gospel has done in our lives, what Jesus has done in the way that we act, in the way that we interact with others around us. It's like as people look at your life, what do they think? What do they see? What impression are they left with? Like, would they say, oh, if knowing this story, they look a lot more like Joseph, or they look a lot more like Genesis 38. 
Like, what would people think? What about our private lives, those that most people don't know? The things we think, the things we do, the things we watch when no one else is watching. What would others say if they knew those? And I want to be careful because, like, we're not going to be liked by everyone. <laughs> I was looking through New Testament, like, Jesus, Paul, like, they were not liked by everyone. A lot of people didn't like them because of the things they were saying, the things they were doing. But when it comes to character, when it comes to integrity, when it comes to purity, like people should have no reason to attack for those reasons. And just again, thinking of Genesis 39 specifically, they're talking about what it means to be above reproach. We see that as, as a qualification for, for elders, for pastors. I always think it's like going to great lengths to avoid even being accused of something. To going to great lengths to be pure. To give no reason for people to question. And before I go there, before I go here, it's not a political statement at all. It's just a guy's name. But like Mike Pence gets a lot, got a lot of critique from a lot of different people for his his rule that he does not go and dine alone with other females. That if they're not his wife, he will not go and be alone with them. Um, he got a lot of critique for that, that, I, that, at least that I read in the news. I used to work with a guy um, when I lived in St. Louis that he, he did the same thing. He would never, we worked in a, in a group home with a bunch of high school boys, and there were male coworkers or female coworkers. But like during the school days, there was often times where it was just us in the home. And he was, he was very clear with our bosses, with everyone else, that if it's just me and another woman, I am leaving. Like he was very clear, if it's just us in, in the house, I am leaving. He'll go to a coffee shop, but I'm leaving that building. Why? Above reproach. Don't give people even a chance to question. Like, it's why we talk about here in the church, like, we don't want to unmarried people coming and hanging out in the building. Like, it's not about an individual person. It's about being above reproach. Don't give anyone an opportunity to even question, to make an accusation. Because as we see in Joseph, like, all it takes is one person making a false accusation that has rippling effects through, through a church, through a family. Because whether or not we like it, the way that we live, our, our actions, our integrity, our character, reflect on Christ and the church. Like, that goes like what we're posting on social media, how we talk inside the church, outside the church, like what kind of neighbors we are, what kind of coworkers we are, what type of friends we are, what type of fellow grocery shoppers or fellow drivers, like whatever it is, like the way that we act reflects on not just us, but like the way that we act with integrity, the way that we respond to others with patience, the way that we are pure, is that leading people to say, I want that. I want what they have. Like, th these kind of things matter. These kind of things are, are important. We also see that all over these chapters, the effects of sin are just, are just all over the place. All over. As we look at Genesis 38, just the effects of, of sin. We see Judah's two sons and their sin. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute, lies, deceives, sleeps with her father-in-law. Judah hires this prostitute. He tries to cover it up, while, all while condemning Tamar's sin. I was struggling, so we just thinking about this, like how quick I am to see other sins so much clearer than I can see my own. It's so easy to say, ah, look at them. I wish they would stop that. That's, that's sin. All while ignoring my own. It's just a question I've been asking myself a lot this week. 
even when we move, when we move to Genesis 39, we see, that this, we see more sin. We see Potiphar's wife and her attempts to sleep with Joseph. We see Joseph then flowing, or fleeing from this immorality. We see that as a result of her sin, we see Joseph being thrown into prison. But in both chapters, we see this reality of sexual immorality, this examples of sexual sin. And it's something that's talked about from cover to cover in the Bible. Paul spends a lot of time talking about this. I was looking through 1 Corinthians this week, and it's like it's all over. Just the call to be pure, the call to be holy, the call to resist this. But as we talk about sexual morality, I think the church has gone to two different extremes in this. I think on one hand you have churches that treat it like it's the one, that sin that you've got to treat differently, that we attack, that we, that we say is the worst. That, that's what we teach the teenagers. That's what we teach um, the children growing up. Like it's this big thing where that so much focus is put on that. And I, I've read different things that say like just the damage that that is doing to teenagers, to people that then go on into marriages and don't even know what is right, what is not right. And these, these effects that it has, when, we, when we, we, that is the sole focus. But then on the other side, what you have is churches that, that will say, I don't want anything to do with that. That's kind of icky. That's awkward. That's not what the world teaches. That's so different than the cultural expectations. So they really shy away from it. Because we live in a world that this is just rampant. It is all over the place. TVs, movies, like internet has brought this to a whole new extreme. Isaac, you're giving me a thumbs up for TV and movies and you have no idea what I just said. Um, <laughs> like, we have access to this from everywhere. I mean, this is the time of year that I can't even get on ESPN anymore because it's just all over the place for people celebrating sexuality and celebrating nudity and celebrating bodies in ways that is not glorifying to God. But there's so many things as I think about TV shows, I think about movies, I think about advertisements, all these things that in so many ways I feel like we are desensitized to how wrong and how immoral things are. I remember... Back in high school, middle school even, like when I'm, I'd want to go see a movie, and mom would want to look it up on Focus on the Family and want to look it up in that plugged in. And I was always, it always made me so mad. I'm like, Mom, it's just a movie. And she would always say that word about being desensitized. And I was like, that, stop, stop. There's a rebellious middle schooler or high schooler. Um, but like, I see it now. I see how desensitized we can become at things that the Bible would say is evil, is wicked, is sin. And we see that here. We see that in Genesis 38. We see that in Genesis 39. Just how, how wicked sexual sin, sexual morality is. Guys, Jesus died for sexual sinners, for those that struggle with sexual immorality. Jesus died for that. Like, what does that mean? Like, that truth, what does that mean? It means that there is forgiveness, there is salvation for us. It means that in Jesus alone can we be forgiven of this. That as we put our faith in Him, we're no longer condemned, but we are forgiven. And I read this verse last week, but I think it's, I think it just is so, so true. Ephesians 1, 7. It says that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Like for those that, is, as I'm talking about, just the, the wickedness, the evil of sexual immorality in this world, in our lives, like there is forgiveness, there is redemption through Jesus. But it, at the same time, when I think of this, just the severity of sin. Like, Jesus died because of sin. Jesus died to overcome this. We must take our sin seriously. 
Like this is something, that, it's not as something we can become desensitized to. Like this is serious. You look at Joseph, we look at the way he fled from sin. And I've been asking like myself, what does fleeing look like for me? Like Joseph was serious, ran out of the place, fled. Like God gave his son so that we might be forgiven, so we might be adopted into the family of God, so that we may, might not be identified with our sin, but in him. And yet we can take this so flippantly, like it's not a big deal, showing how desensitized we are. Look at Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance. It's repentance being more than just saying sorry. Repentance being not just apologizing, but running in the other direction. 180, fleeing, running. Guys, our call is not just to feel bad about our sin, but to repent. Understanding forgiveness found in Jesus, understanding that Christ, through Christ, we are forgiven, but it's running the other way. It's fleeing. Here's the thing. Like, many people... Treat the Bible, both people inside the church and outside the church treat the Bible like it's just a set of, of rules and like just this, these teachings on how to, to live a moral life. But the point of the Christian life is not just to be moral. The, the, sure, the Bible teaches us what this looks like. It, it does, it shows this. But we have no chance to live a moral life, to, to live a life in obedience to these commands apart from Jesus. It's not going to happen. We cannot do it. Like when I say integrity matters, the way we act matters, morality matters, it does. But we cannot do this apart from Jesus. It doesn't happen. We must take it seriously. We must learn to flee. Like when that picture comes on your phone, we flee. When we see that maybe that certain text, we flee. When you're alone and that temptation comes, we flee. When that certain person, that coworker, that friend comes in and sits down when you're all alone, we flee. Like we, we treat sin as serious. Like it... Jesus went to the cross. That's serious. And I think that we're in danger of taking that lightly and not, not understanding, not fully grasping the, the kindness of God, the, the grace of God. His patience with us is meant to lead us to repentance. A 180, fleeing from sin. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. But so much of this, these two chapters, we see these contrasting stories, these contrasting views. But we also see that in the, in the midst of that, in the midst of all this going on, this, this sin that is just running rampant, the consequences of sin, that all along God is working. It doesn't mean God is absent. It doesn't mean God is not there. Specifically, as we look at Genesis 39, like God, what he's doing is all over Genesis 39. I, I, I counted, do you know that in Genesis 39, a third of the verses are talking about what God is doing for Joseph, what God is doing in his life. A third of the verses are talking about how God is granting Joseph success, that God is giving him favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Let me just read those again. 
verses 2 through 6, and then I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man and was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all, from that time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. If you skip down to verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Like, in a world full of sin, where sin is so present, which we've talked a lot about, like, in the midst of that, God was with Joseph. God was still working. God was, again, not absent. But why? Why do we keep seeing it over and over and over? God did this. God did this. God was with Joseph. God made him succeed. <laughs> like, lest we forget who was doing this. Like, this is not Joseph. This is not his ability or his skills or even his good looks. Like, this was not just that, but this was God giving him success. And I, I just want to be, like, so clear about that. This is God giving Joseph success. This, God is, this is God putting Joseph exactly where he wants him to then fulfill his plan. as we think about the places that God has placed us, we're, we're not Joseph. But as just look at that God has placed him there, working out his perfect plan in Joseph's life and really in the people of Israel. Like, that same God still places us exactly where he wants us for his glory. So, like, as we think about all the different places that God has placed us, jobs, school, neighborhoods, the variety of other places that he's put us, like, could it be that he is placing us in those places because it's exactly where he wants us? It's exactly where he wants us to be? It's exactly where... He wants to do great things through us. And as I've been thinking about God at placing us different places, I've been thinking about my own job. Like, do we, do I really realize, like, maybe God would give us success somewhere, not for our glory, but for His? Like, do we, do, do I view my job or my neighborhood or any of these things, I view that in a way that says, wow, God, you have done that. You have put me there. You've given me success. Or you have, have given me this because it's what he's doing. Not what our college degree got us or not what our effort got us or not what this other thing we tried to do, not what that got us, not because we practiced something for so long, but because God did it. Like, are we giving God the credit for where he puts us? Or are we trying to take that and say, well, I studied, I worked hard, I earned, I did these things. Or we say, wow, God, look what you did. Look what you've done in my life. If you watch, if you watch sports or interviews, things like that, it's happens almost every time you see an interview with this, usually the high school athletes that's like asking about their game 
It's an almost like common phrase. I'm going to say, well, first I want to thank God who put me here. And it's almost a place that I've gotten cynical when they say that. I'm like, do you really mean that? And then I start getting in and try to get in their heads, and it's, that's me. That's not okay. But I was thinking, like, if someone interviewed me about success at a job or success in what we're doing or, or success in the church or things that are going on, if someone said, someone came and asked me, what's going on? Would my first response be, it was God. God did this. God did this. It wasn't me. This was God working. I would ask you, like, what is, what would your first response be? Whatever area of your life you want to think about, like, do we give God the credit for where he has us? We've been all over the place. We've talked about sin. We've talked about sexual sin, this, this wickedness. We've talked about what it looks like to flee from our sin. That we should treat this as serious, a sin against God. But then we also see that God is is working all along, that God is, has Joseph right where he wants him, that God is going to do amazing and great things through all of this. Again, I, if you've been here throughout our study in Genesis for the last nine months, like it's probably going to be a little redundant, but what we, what we continue to see, that God is working all through sinners. Like this family line that we've talked a lot about over and over and over again. God is continuing to work through a family line that includes Joseph, that includes Tamar, that includes Jacob, that includes Judah, that includes Isaac, Abraham. Like God is working out his perfect plan in a world that is just full of sin. Like the presence of sin does not stop God. The presence of sin does not limit God. Like we need to be re continually reminded, I think, that God triumphs, that God wins. Like sin in this world does not win. Like this is true in Genesis. This is true today. Like no matter what, like God is victorious. And ultimately, he is victorious because of Jesus. Like Jesus who, who finalized the victory. God who sent his son to secure this. Last week, he said, like, Jesus stepped out of perfection. Stepped into our mess. Stepped into the sinful world. He stepped into a world full of sinners, of sexual sinners, of murderers, of greedy people. And he stepped in to bring salvation, to bring redemption. But Jesus did not come from Joseph's line. Joseph, that's not where he came. He didn't come through Benjamin's line. Jesus would come through Judah's line. The same one who withheld his third son from Tamar. The one who hired a prostitute. The one who tried to hide his sin while judging another? Like Judah's the one in the family line of Jesus. Tamar, one of those sons that was born. Like there's this huge contrast that we see between these two examples. But Jesus came amidst sin. He came through a line of sinners. Over and over and over again, we see that he did not come through a perfect family or a perfect background but he came to save sinners. Church, there is salvation even for the worst of sinners. Because he didn't come to save those who just needed a little bit of help. He didn't come to save those that, that might think they just need a little bit of help over the edge. He came for those that were dead in their trespasses, who had no hope. No hope. Because there is salvation, there is forgiveness, 
we see that God is continually with Judah, Joseph. God is continually with Joseph. Before the Christian, for those that are trusting in Christ for salvation, he's also continually with us. He sends us his Holy Spirit to dwell with us, to reside with us. But we see this all through Scripture, that we have every reason to hope, every reason to trust in Jesus, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, but God. Church, no matter what our situation might look like, no matter what the sin in our past might look like, that is not our hope. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in salvation that we have been given, and that is only through Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's always going to be Jesus. Like, if you're placing your hope in your morality and how hard you're trying just to be good, it's not good enough. If we're placing our hope in, in obedience to a certain law, it's not going to be good enough. Like, it's Jesus. It's only Jesus. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Sinners in need of a Savior. I'm going to pray. I just pray that God would lead us to a place of repentance. That God would lead us to a place of not just feeling sorry, but repenting of our sin. And then he would lead us to worship the only God who is worthy of it. Let's pray.